this is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined by, of course, Richard Epstein, the Libertarian. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, a busy week in immigration politics or human trafficking, depending on how you look at it or characterize it. Last week, Governors Abbott of Texas and DeSantis of Florida made news with their controversial program of busing or flying migrants to Democratic sanctuary cities and states. Now, Governor Abbott of Texas has sent migrants um, all over to, to New York, to Washington, D.C., to Chicago, thousands of migrants, um, and most recently to the Naval Observatory in D.C., which is where Vice President Kamala Harris lives. Uh, DeSantis, I think, took the cake, though, uh, and used public funds to fly migrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard, the epitome of a wealthy, progressive East Coast enclave. Now, the first thing I actually want to discuss about this, Richard, is that a class action lawsuit was filed by 50 of the migrants that DeSantis flew from Texas to actually Florida first and then Martha's Vineyard. The, the migrants alleged that they were dropped in an area with no shelter or resources in place, and they were they went, they were told that they would have jobs and rent-free places to stay. So, Richard, can you walk me through what kind of trouble DeSantis might be in here, if any at all? Uh, we are on terra incognita. There is no place in the world which has ever had suits like this, which has had to uh, litigate. Let's just sort of pretend that this was not an immigration dispute, uh, but just an ordinary private dispute between two individuals, one who wants to get you on a bus and says that they're goodies at the opposite end. And the reason he makes the particular promise is to get you to go. And what he's trying to establish to the larger public at large is that this movement of personnel turns out to be voluntary, which it surely would be if these people had an anticipation of something better at the other end. Their argument is that he lied or that somebody lied on his behalf. But when they got there, they did not basically get the conditions that were promised, and they've suffered harm to their detriment. If you go back to the standard definitions of fraud that have been used for a very, very long time, hundreds of years, uh, this is the classic case of fraud. It's a false statement made on which other individuals rely upon to their detriment causing damage. And so it looks as though it has it. Now, uh, we haven't seen those particular statements. We don't know whether they were made by the governor or people acting on his behalf. We don't know whether they were expectations of proof statements. Uh, the plaintiffs have every different incentive to tell the truth if the truth is in their favor, but they certainly have an incentive to tell something less than the truth if the record turns out to be much more muddled. There is then the question after you go through all of this, whether or not a governor has some particular kind of a privilege to make these sort of statements uh, on the grounds that sovereigns generally have a greater degree of leeway than do other individuals. I've never seen this issue addressed in cases of alleged conscious fraud by a governor, uh, but presumably he could try to claim some kind of privilege of self-defense under this, which I would be rather skeptical about. And so, uh, you know, just looking at this thing, you say to yourself, oh, uh, this seems to be plausible. I mean, if it's true, then the question is, what's the relief? And one thing he could say is, what I'll do is I'll give you each $50 a day or something so you could find a nice place to live in Martha's Vineyard. Or they could say, you're under duty to take them back in, at which point his argument was, oh, sure, they come back here. They're back in the status quo. Andy. I did not have a duty to provide them with shelter before they went to Martha's Vineyard. I don't have a duty to provide them with shelter after they come from Martha's Vineyard. They should be in the proper control of the United States immigration authorities who have preemptive authorities over the old issue. So what you get out of this becomes completely uncertain. 
And so they are probably trying to get a situation in which you can force DeSantis to keep you perpetually. And then the argument is going to be, well, wait a second. Um, if he has to take these people in and he's doing so because of a federal law, uh, if he's discharging federal obligations, he can have a very strong claim to get damages uh, from the Biden administration to cover the expenses that are otherwise going to be there. So the whole thing has got this kind of topsy-turvy sort of a situation. And what makes it worse is lawsuits like this are not going to be resolved within a day or an hour or a week. And so everybody's going to be in limbo until this thing goes at least through some preliminary discovery, a very quick oral argument, some kind of appeal, and perhaps a quick trip to the United States Supreme Court. And so uh, the nature of the relief, which has to be emergency in some sense, is not going to fit very well with what's going on. And in the interim, what's going to happen is the folks in Martha's Vineyard are going to have to pick this up. And then what they're going to do is to say, ah, we have the right to subrogate ourselves to the claims that the citizens have. So we'll pay them off. And then what we will do is turn around and we will sue ourselves. Well, let's talk about why they were sent to Martha's Vineyard. I mean, it, it I guess it proves a political point, but Martha's Vineyard is also a, a sanctuary destination. Massachusetts is a, a sanctuary state. And I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, Richard. How do, can Martha's Vineyard or any of these states declare themselves a sanctuary city and not be in violation of federal law? Well, it depends on what you think you're doing when you're offering a sanctuary. And I think the way in which they would put it is there's nothing about federal law which requires state officials to assist the federal government in the enforcement of federal rules. Uh, this is a very important doctrine that was established um, some time ago in connection with the enforcement of the gun laws and infection and some of the environmental laws is that what you can do as a state is demand independence from federal recovery. If the federal government wants to get your assistance, what it can do is it can try to enter into some kind of a voluntary agreement. So offering somebody a sanctuary city, uh, that is not per se illegal because you've not obstructed the enforcement of federal law. Well, then the question is, what does count as an obstruction of federal law? Well, one of the things that you cannot do if you declare yourself a sanctuary city is to give the federal government systematic leading misinformation as to what happens with various kinds of immigrants or illegal aliens in the United States when they're released from prison. You say, well, leave them out on 4th Street and you leave them out across the town. That would be regarded as obstruction, and you can't do that at all because you're making it more difficult for the government to do this. But suppose what happens, you just don't tell them anything at all, and then they have to figure this out. Well, is it obstruction if the federal government say, we need to have the information as to where they're going to go when they're released so that we can apprehend them? And the other guys say, no, we don't have to tell you that at all. And the federal government says, well, there's an obligation of cooperation to some extent um, that you have to not necessarily help us in the enforcement of the law, but give us enough information so that we could do it ourselves. So that the line between non-cooperation and obstruction starts to get a very kind of very antsy. So that's the position that they're going to try to do. Now, why do these states want to declare of themselves as sanctuary states, a sanctuary city? It's very clear most of them think that the immigration system is particularly inhumane and that many people are going to be subject to deportation for minor offenses inside the United States, which would only cause minor inconvenience to citizens who were charged with the same thing. So they regard this as a way of trying to slow down uh, the path, which would otherwise lead people who've been well-established in given towns uh, for a very long period of time, committing a minor offense, 
being forced to deport themselves because of federal law. And in fact, there's no question that everybody in both the federal and the state decision have extreme reluctance to prosecute people for minor offenses under local law that the consequence is either a heightened risk of or a demand for um, deportation of these citizens. So some of this turns out to be very lofty. In other cases, it turns out that the people who are doing this are just in favor of open borders at some level, thinking that the United States should descend its powers and its privileges of citizens to the less fortunate around the world. And so they think this is a way to nudge us closer to a system of open borders and free immigration. That position in the world, and I think, has been hammered in the last uh, year or two, because it's quite clear that when you start opening up the borders, uh, the floodgates are much more rapidly overcome than anybody had expected. There are many more people coming in. Many of them are children who are unattended. Many of them are young men who are looking for trouble, or so it is said. And that by the time you put this whole thing together, the system becomes absolutely overwhelmed. So... This is coming in in red states, in Texas and Florida and so forth. And the federal government says, we'll let them in. And then sort of the state's going to have to figure out how under its police power it controls with these things. And their attitude is we can't tell, says DeSantis and Abbott, can't tell the federal government that they can't take these people in. We can't even tell them when they take them in that they have to make sure that they don't run roughshod around the country. We can't do anything about it. So what we're going to do is exercise our police power. And when they start to stop here, we're going to make sure they're going to send them on to a place where you guys think that you've got a lot of political force. And let's just be very clear. They said, if we get 100 immigrants coming in, we're lucky if we could bust five of them uh, to some point in Chicago or Martha's Vineyard or anywhere else. We still face the brunt of the problem. And you're not doing anything. So we want this to be a vote of no confidence in the Biden administration so that it returns to some of the Trump policies including making sure that people who have possible claims for asylum in the United States do not get to the United States first and then litigate their claims. They're kept out of the United States until the claims are resolved one way or another. And this is an absolutely toxic issue. There are very few common grounds upon this. Uh, but what we do know is that the rate of immigration that has taken place, the property disruption that takes place along the way, potential criminality, all of this stuff is so novel that what you cannot do is draw any inferences from the ways in which immigrants behaved when they were let in under much more stable circumstances, married, had homes, and all the rest of this stuff. So that past practice is not an accurate prediction of what's going to take place. The Cato Institute, for example, did an extremely powerful set of studies which said that stable illegal immigrants into the United States are in many ways the most virtuous of citizens. And I have no reason whatsoever to doubt that. Uh, but whether or not that's going to be predict predictive of what's going to happen when you have literally thousands of people coming across the border at these particular points, no place to go, no resources to house them, small children being left without parents, young people with a lot of energy and so forth. I can't predict what's going to happen. Uh, but you're going to hear charges about immigration. Not that we just don't like these people. You're going to hear charges about the immigrants coming in, that there's been property destruction uh, that has taken place, and that there's been personal crimes that have been committed. This may not have happened previously, but it's happening now. As I always like to say, I'm a professor of law. I'm not a professor of facts. That is, I can't verify or deny these kinds of claims. But it's pretty confident that they're going to have to be litigated in some way, shape, or form, if only in the court of public opinion. And it's equally clear that the Biden administration is under increasing pressure to 
straighten out its particular act uh, because what it has done is it brought in these problems, which has caused immense difficulty in border towns. And now what DeSantis and Abbott is saying, we can share the misery with everybody else. So uh, just to go back to that previous hypothetical, Tom, suppose what they did is they just pushed them on the boat, on the bus, and said, look, we can't guarantee what's going to happen in Martha's Vineyard, but we're not doing anything to help you here. So we think we could ship you on, talk to them. I don't know whether that's legal or not, and I don't know what the folks in uh, Martha's Vineyards could say, but if it turns out that these people are the charges of the states that uh, to which they come illegally, it's not all clear that a place like Martha's Vineyard, which has welcomed them, can turn around and say, we welcomed you if you're one of the few people who came in legally who we'd love to have anyhow, and so that's fine. Sanctuary cities now have some degree of bite, and this problem is going to continue to spread until one gets a to- control over the total level of immigrants coming into the United States. Well, let's talk about that, Richard, because, I mean, I know we live in this age of performative politics, but this case of busing people, migrants, to make a political point seems like a step too far. Um, it's it's the reaction we're seeing from you know Republican governors who are, um, I don't know if Florida counts as a border state, really, if you've got Cuba so much, but Texas uh, especially. What would you like to see them do Instead, I mean, this is not a solution. It, it's supposed to raise awareness, I suppose, but I, I also want to ask at what cost. What would you like to see from from the right side of the aisle um, to to address this? I mean, what well, what were they supposed to do? I mean, if they can't change federal immigration policy, I suppose so. Well, these guys are also running for president, probably, right? So, yeah, I mean, so what would they do if they were running for the president policies? I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a reprise of some of the Trump imperatives. The ones that tried to solve these problems outside the United States rather than inside the United States by making deals with other countries so that they can house them under circumstances where it seems to work out. I think that will be very much back on the table. Several courts have tried to enforce it, but Biden is trying to constantly underride that stuff. I think you're going to see a return to the wall. And the argument is we know a lot more about how these immigrants are coming across this boundary right now. And so we can build a better wall than we ever thought that we could build before. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this particular case. So I think you'll see some of that. I think what's going to happen is if you're dealing with this from the side of the conservative Republican, they will start to make it criminal offenses for people to harbor individuals. And that might well lead to the fact that sanctuary cities will now be under heavier obligations that they can't simply evade. Um, even if they would like to do so. My guess is there will be kind of additional things imposed upon employers. It's a very unpleasant situation. And other people, so as to stop the immigration by stopping people from hiring them, uh, somebody could come back and say, well, you do one of two things. Either say you can't come into the United States if you're not hired, and then you try to expand the number of people who are hired. Uh, there's a huge ambiguity with respect to that. We have both policies. We sometimes insist that people get jobs before they come into the United States. And then we start to say to other people, you can only come into the United States if you don't get a job, because if you get a job, you're going to undercut the competitive position of American workers in the same industry. We have so many different aspirations in this case, uh, working at court purposes. And that what you will do is see a shift in emphasis on the part of the Republicans should they take power. But the thought that you're going to somehow see immigration go down to zero or for the internal cases to be fully handed, that's just a pipe dream. Um, Any system that you have is very sensitive to peak load traffic, and the peak load traffic is becoming very, very hard. 
which means that the chances of success are diminishing by the day. So I think both parties are in this mess. Politically, my guess is the Republicans will continue to make headway on this, and it could tip the election, or at least the vote in many states. The analogy I think that one has to look to is what happened in Europe with the vast immigrations that took place seven and eight years ago into northern of Arabs being dispossessed in various countries, Serbs being dispossessed and so forth. Uh, there was a willingness originally on the part of Sweden and Denmark to take large numbers of these people, and that has completely disappeared. There is now utter hostility uh, and complete objection to the whole activity. And what's the explanation for this? Well, it turns out that the two civil cultures don't mesh. And it's not just a question how individual immigrants behave, but if you start having one group of people who believe one thing about sexual freedom and another group that thinks another thing is fine, you can't say in a particular town, some women are going to be allowed to go around in short pants and in a halter top, and others are going to be required to wear a burqa. And so the social distances between these two communities have become larger. It's clear that they're not easily reconciled. And so what has happened is two countries which are known for their tolerance have really started to clamp down on this. How bad it is, I'm no expert, so I don't want to pretend, but I would just mention one little headline I saw in the in the New York Times, which says that Sweden has become so far right that it's impossible for anybody to live there. I think it means impossible for any subscriber to the New York Times to live there. Uh, but what it does refer very accurately to is a genuine change in political consequences. Free trade is something that's easy to defend. Free immigration is so much harder to defend because the moment you start letting people in, uh, they not only have market roles, but they have all sorts of political roles. They can buy property. They can change the electoral vote in a given district. Um, they can do you know, the way the Muslim community has done in Detroit and so forth, uh, large, powerful enclaves. And there's going to be increasing reluctance to that taking place. And I think that this happened in Europe. The immigration, if not mistaken, probably peaked five or six years ago. And there's very little sort of sort of universal openness to deal with this again. And I think that that's much more likely to happen in the United States than for Biden to keep on being able to do all this stuff. Really complicated here, uh, because unlike uh, the European countries where administrative control is pretty much a fixed and absolute operation, in the United States, every time a hostile Trump-like administration wants to impose something, there's going to be a civil liberties alliance, which is going to say you've gone beyond the scope of the Constitution. So that you know this battle is long from over. When I started to sign up for this particular topic, I thought I would have one show. But now I'm beginning to think we need to have many, many before we can resolve it. And we'll do those shows in the future. But for now, you've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on definingideas at hoover.org. Now, if you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends, tell them to listen, uh, and then fight with them about it. Or you can go and rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.